It's uh, the Sunday night movie, right? The ABC right. Sunday night movie, popcorn, with uh, with dad sitting on the couch, watching the crazy antics of this James Bond character. So I was uh, trying to figure out which of the uh, first ones that I saw, and I think it was for your eyes only. Although that's like 1981. That makes sense. Yeah, but Moonraker, too, also makes sense. Because that was like 78-ish. And also, you know, Star Wars' fault. So, that movie. But yeah, I think For Your Eyes Only sounds about right. However, I'd seen, as I said, the ABC Sunday Night movie. I'd seen them all a million times before. I don't know. Anyway, as always, my name's Matt. I'm coming at you live here on tape. From uh, Houston, Texas, is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Shaken, not stirred. Haha, <laughs> nice. Excellent. Well, we are the brothers Trek about, but this week we are not trekking about Trek. We are bonding over Bond, is what we are doing. <laughs> <laughs> we are continuing our adventure into looking at what was popular in 1966 while Star Trek was on the air. We thought, hey, why not do a Bond film? Bond was popular in the 60s. And uh, this one came out of Christmas of 65, so can't get much more 1966 than that, really. We'll be talking about Thunderball this week. James Bond, 007, the exciting guy that he is. Uh, we're going to be covering all sorts of stuff when it comes to this movie. Can't wait to talk about it. Uh, so let's, uh, you know, jump right in. So, of course, we got uh, Ian Fleming, right? The guy who wrote all those novels. To start off with, paperback. Would we would we be considering these pulp uh, at this point? Or yeah, I think so. I mean, he he thought of them as something you would read on a train trip. Mm -hmm. You're going by train. You pick one up. By the time you're at your destination, you've read the book. You had a good time. Now you go about your business. <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, so this is the uh, paperback writer that uh, the uh, the Beatles were always singing about, right? Never understood that song. I don't know. I've tried to figure it out. I'm like, he, he's got a great novel, but he's trying to be a paperback writer? I don't get it. <laughs> to write these trashy novels, you can't be making as much money as somebody who writes a good novel, right? I don't know. We'd have to ask Truman Capote or somebody from the 60s to know for sure. Um, so Bond was, <clears throat> you're going to be better at this, so fill in the blanks whenever I'm dumb. But uh, uh, Bond was a little bit different in the books, wouldn't you say? Oh, he was a oh little very more... much so, yeah. Yeah. He so, was a little... Uh, go, hit me. The, the key guy to, to grasp here, and of course we can make all of our analogies to Star Trek, and I hope we will, is Kevin oh, yeah. McClory. Kevin okay. McClory directed Dr. No, Promotion with Love, and Thunderball. In fact, when he was first... No, Terrence Young. Yes, okay. Right. Yes. 
Sorry. So, um, so Terrence Young, he, he gets the word that they want to make James Bond. And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm interested. Let's do that. And okay. he says, in fact, uh, I would be willing to do any one of these three stories. Uh, first, Thunderball. Second, oh. For Much With Love. And third, Dr. No. As it turns out, of course, he had, in the world of the imagination, he had, had thought, like, it'd be so cool to do Thunderball, right? Yeah. It'd be, it would be cool to do Ferocious Love, and I could do a really good Dr. No. And then he, afterwards, much later, he realized it was a good, it turned out well that they did Dr. No first, and then uh, Thunderball, or then uh, For Much With Love, and only got to Thunderball fourth, because he said right. my budget was a million dollars for Dr. No. And it was uh -huh. $2 million for Promotion of Love. And then Goldfinger had about a $4 million budget. And Thunderball had a $9 million budget. And had wow. we done Thunderball first, it would have looked cheap. We couldn't have done any of the cool stuff we did. And we never would have made another one. And by doing <laughs> Dr. No first, which had the least, you know, fantastical stuff to it. Right. It was the easiest one to do correctly, to do properly on the budget of a starting franchise. So anyway, he was himself a super sophisticated guy. Right. Born out in the colonies, world traveler, um, you know, been involved in kind of a cool way during World War II. Um, actually wrote like plays and, and movies and things while he was participating in the war effort. And so he was the guy who under you know was the the tailor he's the guy who took sean connery and said this is how you dress this is how you hold a martini glass this right. is how he knew that stuff because he lived that way mm -hmm. so he brought a tremendous amount of sophistication to james bond you know when you read the books this is the other thing that he grasped is that the books were fun and amusing but a lot of it had to do with the narration a lot of it was Ian Fleming's voice, not James Bond's voice. Yeah. And how do you translate that to film? Well, you can't use the sardonic narration of Ian Fleming as the source of your amusement. You have to put <laughs> funny words into James Bond. Right. You have to, uh, you know, give him one-liners. You've got to give him those double entendres. You've got to give him those kind of throwaway bits that make the audience laugh. And so, you know, you got lots of lines where he first meets Domino and he, he says her name to her. She's like, how did you know my name? I saw it on your ankle bracelet. Ooh, you've got sharp eyes, Mr. Bond. Wait till you get to my teeth. Yeah. Right. So the Bond from the films is full of that kind of stuff. It's not the way Bond is in the books. Instead, the Bond of the books was this kind of cold, sensible killer. And the books themselves had the fun. It was Ian Fleming who was the fun guy. Uh -huh. And um, Terrence Young knew you, you can't do that. You have to translate that to film. And that means that Bond has to be fun and he has to say funny things. And so we get the Bond we know from film. Terrence Young. There you go. All thanks to him. Yep. <laughs> So I just looked up, by the way, how much uh, $9 million in 1966 would be in today's money. And it's something crazy like $76 million. <laughs> so and that you, was quite the big budget. You probably could do a really good James Bond film for 76 <laughs> so, Yeah. 
Yeah, it's probably close to like uh, you know at least Golden Eye or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, uh, the other thing too worth mentioning is that Ian Fleming stole the name James Bond after a after a <clears throat> off a uh, standard a book of standard British birds. It was written by a guy named James Bond, so that's where he stole the name. He was like, "I've got to find a name that is just like really like average and normal, and you know, isn't going to be you know, Jack Striker or you know right, something right. crazy like we'd have today." No, it's James Bond. Blah. So great. I love that note. Before uh, Eon, as we know them today, okay, I'm blanking on their names now, uh, Saltzman and... Broccoli. Thank you, Broccoli, who's still, uh, whose family is still running it today. Before they got a hold of the movie rights, uh, Ian Fleming decided he should uh, try and write a James Bond movie and see what happened. Mm -hmm. So he enlisted the, the help of uh, Kevin McClory and uh, Jack Whittingham, and uh, they started. they sat down to write a a movie called Thunderball. And uh, Ian Fleming pretty quickly got bored of the movie writing process. I'm sure it wasn't the fun of, you know, novel as, you know, writing the novel as he would write them. And it was a lot more uh, technical and a lot more, he got bored with it. So uh, he left and then went and wrote a book called Thunderball. Not surprisingly, uh, McClory and Whittingham sued saying, uh, hey man, that's, that's our stuff. What are you doing? Nothing really came. That was settled out of court. It was it was it was a minor thing, but uh, because it had this going on around it, they opted not to do that. That was another reason they opted not to do this one as the first story as Doctor No, because of all this weird legal stuff. Eon's lawyers were all like, "Yeah, you probably don't want to touch that." In fact, they never wanted to do it. Salzman especially thought, you know, it, it's going to tie us up in legal stuff. You know, we got to just be making movies. We can't be mm -hmm. spending time in court. And, but the, the thing was, in a lot of ways, it is, you know, it's super glamorous. It's a good, it's a really good, in fact, he did it twice. Never Say Never Again, it's just Thunderball again. Uh, but of course, yes. McClory was involved in both of those. So, yep. you know, they, they came on the idea that what they really ought to do is bring McClory on board. Give right. him the producer, As a producer credit, yeah. Let him be the producer, and and to also allow him to make and and uh, Broccoli hated this part of it, but let him make his own Bond movies if he could get financing, which he uh -huh. never actually was able to do, except you know, in the middle of the eighties with Never Say Ever Again. Well, and that was Sony too, wasn't it? Because yeah. Sony wanted to make a Bond film, and so they were like, "Oh, we can do this one. Let's do this one." Well, they could have made anything based on the movie scripts. Right. But for a bunch of reasons, you know, studios get cautious, everybody gets cautious, and they basically redid Thunderball. I mean, yep. the, the characters have the same names, the situations, the same the plot. The, it's just that it yep. takes place in the 80s rather than in the 60s. But otherwise, yeah, note for note, it's Thunderball. Well, you know, even funny is, is that I read this note that uh, the, the name of the ship in this one is the, the Disco Volante. Mm -hmm. Now I can't remember what it translates to. Like, ah, dang it, I'm so stupid. But whatever it translates to in English is the name of the boat in uh, in Never Say Never. So I thought that's pretty funny too. Like you said, then in fact, it's funny because Thunderball is actually the only movie where Broccoli doesn't have a producer credit because they gave it to uh, McClory instead. So 
Some uh, interesting other people were, uh, were, were up for the role of Domino. Uh, these people were, uh, the first person they wanted was uh, Julie Christie. That was who uh, Saltzman really wanted really bad. But uh, then once he met her, he was like, ah, maybe you're not right. So then uh, other people who auditioned were Faye Dunaway and Raquel Welch. Those would have been very interesting casting <laughs> decisions, I think, but yeah. neat. But instead, uh, the person we got, we got uh, Miss France, Claudine Auger got uh, the role of domino and she's good too i think she's like playful enough and uh you know is uh, i think really works as a bond girl although they had to get someone to do her voice so she gets dubbed oh really she's yeah. dubbed too huh so oh, now funny. they had done this like goldfinger was dubbed right uh -huh. it's, not, it's not his voice yeah Andrus. So, right so part of it was they did a lot of dubbing in the 60s Mm -hmm. And within the Bond franchise, they had dubbed major characters before all the time, so dubbing yet another character wasn't a problem. I, it, it's hard to imagine them dubbing today. Yeah. Right? Thunderball, by the way, goes on to become the most successful Bond feature of the 1960s. And uh, I think I even saw another thing that said, even in today's money, it's probably still one of the most successful uh, Bonds ever. I think... There's a really good argument to be made that it is the best Bond film ever. Hmm. However, I think it's because there are all these other Bond films. And what I mean by that is that Thunderball is a response to the other Bond films. There's all these times they make the unobvious choice, not the choices they had established as being, this is how a Bond film works. Yeah. But they inverted those choices. So, for example... Critics have made a big deal out of the fact that Bond had turned the lesbian female antagonist Pussy Galore and, and you know, made him his ally. And they're like, yeah. this is stupid. And <laughs> so in, in this movie, they consciously chose to have, uh, I believe it's Fiona. Yep. You know, basically go, go down that same route and then, you know, turn out the last minute. Ha ha, you didn't get me. You know, you think you're so amazing. You think that every girl who sees James Bond, you know, loses your sensibilities and just does whatever you want. But yep. that's not how it works, mister. Yep. And uh, so that was one example. But there's a lot of examples where they, they kind of invert the expectations of the audience. And that makes a really good film, but you couldn't do it without previously having established a certain set of expectations and then toying with your formula. But you can't keep doing that because then you just have no formula. Right. So in that sense, it's hard to imagine how they... You, you could do other things. Other, I mean, there's all kinds of other interesting things you could do. But, but tweaking the formula is not one you could do indefinitely. And Sean Connery at this point was starting to become a little bit burned out of the, uh, of the thing. He, he didn't feel like playing James Bond really challenged him. And he's cranking out one a year. Uh, by the time Thunderball hits, there's like paparazzi, not paparazzi, yeah. but press yeah. all over the set. There, you know, he's, there's millions of interviews that people are, you know, asking him to take. The only one he does, by the way, is Playboy magazine, which I think is wildly appropriate for James Bond. So, like, there's, there's uh, shots of him at the Cannes Film Festival, right? Uh -huh. And he went for a different movie, but he couldn't show up as, like, here, I'm supporting this other movie. He had to show up as James Bond. Yeah. And, of course, he got all this press coverage because he did that. He shows up in a sports car in a finely tailored suit. He, he looks like Bond. The other thing, you know, and this is key about bringing Terrence Young back, 
is Young and, and Connery, they really enjoyed each other's company. They kind of ran around together. They had a, a similar, similar sense of humor. And, I, you know, they worked well together. And so Young would kind of bring out some of the best in Connery's performance. And Connery knew it, and he enjoyed working. And I think one of the reasons it was a good idea to bring Terrence Young back was because Sean Connery would be happier playing Bond with, with Terrence yeah. Young at the helm. Yep. Well, so, and he was hoping that the next movie was going to be on Her Majesty's Secret Service. He thought that that was like a really cool story and a really good idea, but uh, they ended up doing uh, You Only Live Twice instead, and uh, he didn't have a great experience on that movie, which of course is then why he ends up leaving, uh, leaving the franchise. Although both you and I lament the fact that uh, Under Majesty's Secret Service kind of would have been a nice little send-off for uh, the, Connery, uh, the Connery Bond. Not only is that true, you know, but had they had the foresight to say, you know, we need to, because what Connery wanted to do is make basically what so many actors want to do. I want to make a blockbuster to pay for my art films. Yep. He wanted to do little films like The Hill. And they should have said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. In fact, we'll, we can finance it with bond money. We have a production company. Uh, you know, Ian, we'll, we'll make those films. And, you know, they just have to make sure it doesn't turn into Apple, right? The, uh, the Beatles kind of crazy, just let people do crazy projects and we'll fund it. And suddenly the Beatles are broke and have to, you know, go to court and sue each other. And well, that's <laughs> the end of the Beatles. So you don't right. want to do that. But if they could have found a way that to just not be, oh, we just got to keep making Bond films. They're like, no, no, we can, we can slow it down a little bit. We can, you know, do these other things. And, you know, these other movies are going to take like six weeks. Yeah. These, these little pictures that Connery wanted to do would have been like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a $2 million picture and uh, it's going to take us six weeks. And it's a totally different kind of character. That's kind of all I have as far as behind the scenes stuff. Is, but we'll do more once we get into the, uh, into, to the film itself, there's a, more stuff I've got, but uh, that's pretty much it. I'm ready to start the recap if you are down, sir. All right, let's do it. Captain's log, starting. It's five-year mission. And so we start this movie like we start every Bond film over the last 50 years with the MGM Lion. I always associate that with Bond films. In fact, I was listening to some podcast recently where they – is there ever an opening uh, an opening of one of those company, those production things, where then you're not – you're sad that the movie you're hoping for – like the 20th Century Fox fanfare, are you always disappointed when it, then it's not Star Wars that comes after? That's how I feel about the MGM Lion. I see the MGM Lion, and I'm like, are we going into dun-dun-dun? You know, because if we are, I'm ready. Let's go for some fun Bond stuff. This was a problem with uh, Never Say Never Again. Is not only did they not have the lion, but they couldn't yep. use the theme. Because while yeah, McClory the may have had rights to the movie scripts, the character, he could use the character and some of the things that go around Bond. Yep. You know, they couldn't use the theme and they couldn't use lots of things that we feel like the, the, the gun barrel at the beginning. and Right. Well, and McClory, I believe, too, owned the rights to Blofeld. Didn't he? Which is why Blofeld doesn't show up during any of the Roger Moore movies. 
Well, they had established I it. I think part of it is they got, they felt like they had done everything they could with it in the in the films. So mm-hmm. they did the tr- the trilogy, in which uh, which ends with Honor Majesty's Secret Service. So after that, you kind of imagine the Spectre is now being run by whoever his replacement is, but number two. Yeah. Well, I guess he's dead now too. <laughs> at the end of this movie. <laughs> All right, so then as speaking of, we do then get the gun barrel here, right, where we get the uh, hatted James Bond. This, by the way, is also the first time Sean Connery is actually seen in the gun barrel sequence. Before that, it was the same one they had used in uh, from, uh, from Russia with Love and Goldfinger, which was uh, one of the stuntmen wearing the hat. But this one was actually Bond. We open on a casket that has JB on the initials. What happened? Is Bond died again? Is uh, uh, What's going on here? But seconds later, then we see Bond. Are we doing another fake death thing? What's happening here? Nope, this is just a ploy by the director to make us uh, to make us question everything. Then we see the female French special agent sent to help out Bond. She asks Bond innocently if he needs anything. Perhaps later, he grins. He's then watching the widow, you know, walk out of the church, get into the car, but she opens up the door herself. How strange, Bond thinks, and he follows the widow, the widow, the widow. The widow widow. He follows the, the widow widow. He follows the widow uh, home or, or somehow arrives at her place before she gets there. He then stands to offer his condolences to the widow and then punches her in the face. Bond, what is happening? But we turned out that it is Colonel Boulevard who we are, or Bouvard, not Boulevard. Uh, <laughs> Colonel Bouvard, who we thought was dead who Bond mentions earlier in the movie that the one he wanted to kill himself because he had killed two of his double O colleagues. I don't think you should have opened the, the car door by yourself. A fight begins. The wig comes off. It is a man. Bond finally kills him by wrapping a, a poker from the fireplace around his neck. He then sillily takes an extra couple of seconds to throw the flowers onto Bouvard's body before he takes off. So one of the functions uh, of these opens is to yes. to throw us off our game, <laughs> to make us think that nothing we see is as we really think. So blind men are assassins. Or yes. we see Bond being killed, but it's not Bond. It was a training you know, mission for Red Grant. Or uh, mm-hmm. in this case, that's not a woman, it's a man. And it, he's not dead, he's alive. And right. you know, nothing is as it seems, because this is the world of James Bond. Dun dun dun! So uh, seconds later, he finds himself on the on the roof of the of the building he was just in, where luckily he either happens to find or is also somehow wearing a rocket pack that he then puts on and flies over the building and lands next to the Aston Martin, where the French spy is ready to uh, assist him in putting the rocket pack into the the boot of the car. Uh, they jump into the car just as. Somehow, the people who were chasing him on the roof catch up with him and start to fire. But then the shield goes up on the uh, back of the window of the car, and they shoot fire hoses out of the back of the Aston Martin as well, which manages to stop the guys from firing. So, of course, this is there a storied go, vehicle. Opening. A storied vehicle in James Bond. We first Truth. really see it in Goldfinger. It turns up again in this little piece in Thunderball. We'll see it again a couple of times. And then even Daniel Craig will drive this vehicle. 
That's right. Skyfall. Tell your story about the uh, theme song here, sir. Okay. The Italian press had dubbed James Bond as Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Some of the people involved in Bond thought, you know, that would be a, a really good title. We could write a song that explains who James Bond is and talk about the character in this song. And it would be fun. And you know, it's very rare that the world just hands you this great little title. And so they did. They made this great song. And they had um, uh, Dean Warwick sing it. And it was fantastic. He's tall and he's dark. And like a shark, he looks for trouble. That's why the zeros double. Mr. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. He's suave and he's smooth and he can soothe. You like vanilla, the gentleman's a killer. Mr. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. And the studio is like, yeah, it doesn't have the title. You know, the, the last one had the title, and the one before that had the title. Don't we have to have the title in the song? And they're like, no, <laughs> we don't. And the studio is like, I, I really think we do have to have the title. It's going to sell more movies. So they, the studio made them go back and make a Thunderball theme song. And the people who were doing it. So wait, one sec. Uh-huh. One sec. Let me stop you here. Just to ask the members of the people in the listening audience to think, how do you write a song about Thunderball? You know what I mean? Like, what could you possibly come up with that you're like, oh, Thunderball totally makes sense. I know how to make this a, uh, a song. Right. Which is, of course, is the problem they then run into. So if we think of Dr. No, this is before <laughs> they come up with the idea of the name there's no doctor no you know song it's three blind yeah. mice it sets the, the caribbean atmosphere it's atmospheric right and then in from russia with love it's very romantic and it establishes this mood right it's very yep. good at establishing mood but it's a real song right <laughs> it's about you know traveling and, and loss and mourning and uh you know a relationship at a long distance and then goldfinger is about the villain very clearly. Yep. And it's good. I mean, it tells you this is a guy you don't want to mess with. Yep. He's sneaky. He's tricky. He'll see seductive. And so, but Thunderball is the name of the operation, right? There's no, what is Thunderball? It's a, they used to like come up with just random words and stick them together so you couldn't figure out what the operation was about. Right. So Thunderball means nothing. And they're like, well, you know, what we're going to do is basically make a kind of parody of this kind of song that explains James Bond, right? Now it's not mm -hmm. going to be Mr. Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang, but an only, it's going to be, it's not going to make any sense. It's just going to be a bunch of things strung together that kind of tell you about James Bond. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, um, it's not clear, but it does set a kind of mood, right? Mm -hmm. Especially 
if it's sung straight, if it's sung as though, no, I, I mean this. He really does. Only. <laughs> he acts while other men just talk. <laughs> so they give it to, to Tom Jones. Who asks, like, how do I sing it? Because I don't, I don't get it from the, the lyrics. I'm not right. sure. They're like, just sing it straight. Just, you know, you know, give it, give it everything. Go loud, go strong. He does. He gives a fantabulous performance. He looks at this world and wants it all. So he strikes out at the end of it because uh he's so exhausted at yeah. the at the take holding out that final note i think but he thinks that the fight is worth it all so he strikes You know, they have their song, but you listen to the lyrics and you're like, what does it mean? What, what, what's, what's really going on here? And aside from being an impressionistic kind of almost pastiche of James Bond, it really means nothing. It's so impressionistic. So, and it, it does almost parody Bond because the guy is writing it were ticked off. I don't know what you mean. I think that lines like, his needs are more, so he gives less. Are totally they make total sense there. <laughs> so uh, over this great Tom Jones song, we also have uh, more opening titles by Maurice Binder, who of course has famously created many, many of the opening titles for the Bond movies, all the naked women silhouettes, all that kind of stuff. That's all uh, Maurice Binder, folks. That is the thing. So we get to, uh, we open in France, still-ish. We're still in France. Uh, we see the Eiffel Tower in the background. Uh, Largo pulls up. He's a man with an eye patch. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, we quickly find ourselves in a meeting with Blofeld. Ooh. And some let's, of his underlings. Let's pause here for a moment. I want to draw some Star Trek comparisons here. Since we are- No, hit it. Yeah. So this is one of our first- fantastic sets you know designed by ken adam ken adam started with a who again doctor. also is yes, yes exactly you know dr knows amazing you know laboratory and radioactive uh all that kind of stuff and mm -hmm. fort knox and goldfinger and all these amazing places also and too he created the underwater sub mm -hmm. he created that <clears throat> and then they were like how are we going to do this and he's like, by this point, he, he says, I knew that whatever I created for uh, 007, whatever I created for any of these movies, I knew that some, somebody somewhere knew how to make this thing a reality. And right. sure enough, he found a guy who did, a bunch, who did mini subs and was like, 
yeah, I can build that. And so <laughs> sure enough, they did. It's amazing. So here we have this set, which is so thoroughly modern, right? I mean, it's very cool. Yep. And so let me see my note here. It's very modern, very 60s. Oh, it is. It's fantastic. So he's got this amazing modern set, and it looks like it's villainous, but it's also kind of cold and austere. And the fact right. that, like, you're murdering people here in the middle of a business meeting is, you know, it makes sense in this space. Ken Adam, in the same way that, that uh, Jeffries, you know, Matt Jeffries was able to create these, these modern spaces that just looked so cool. Uh-huh. And... You know this this kind of visual language, this um, of of cool modern spaces, is one of the things that links uh, through Ken Adam and Matt Jeffries. I think uh, this kind of '60s cool, whether it's James Bond or Star Trek. Well, and to give Jeffries props, everything he created was on a way smaller budget. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so you got Ken Adams. He's like, yeah, well, we got a nine million dollar budget on this thing. We're gonna be fine. We're going to get it figured out. And then, you know, you go to Jeffries, who's like, I got like 190000 to make an episode. Uh, I think I can do it. We'll see what happens. Well, so, you know, for Jeffries, a lot of it was you, you build something for the show, which they then use over and over and over and over and over again. So you build the ship. True. The ship in, in a lot of ways, the ship is a critical character in Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we love the ship. And just showing the ship is a way to say Star Trek, because that's how important right. the ship is. I mean, you know, in a lot of ways, the Aston Martin is cool, and it's a kind of a way of saying Bond, but Bond's driven a lot of cars. I know. For some reason, I always, when I think of Bond car, for some reason, I always think of that stupid Lotus that goes underwater yeah. in uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, that's that's a Bond car as far as I'm concerned. I should yeah. think Aston Martin, but no, I think the the, the silly sports car. Uh, that goes underwater. Also, though, to Jeffrey's benefit, uh, you know, he also creates a lot of those planets, you yeah. know, that we see too. So, again, just major props. Ken Adam, I mean, what he did for Bond. Even Sean oh, Connery yeah. in, in the documentary I saw is like, nobody in the crew got the props that they deserved, you know, for everything that they did for those movies. So, although that is true, we also got to give, uh, you know, Jeffrey's man. That guy's amazing. So in the next scene, in which, in which we see the double O's and all that yep. going on, another space designed by Ken Adam, but it's the exact opposite. It's classical, right? Yep. It's reserved. It's serious. These are not people who are going to kill one another. You know, these are men who are going to offer one another, you know, tips on caviar or, you know, the, <laughs> the, the best place to get some delicious bread or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Where to find the best port. Continuing where we left off on this scene, we uh, we find out that Largo is number two under Blofeld, which is interesting. We also hear about the death of number six, Colonel Bouvard, whose uh, operations for Spectre will be horribly missed. Uh, we also get Blofeld here with the signature cat. You can, if you look now really hard, you can sort of see Blue, Blofeld through the like the blinds that he's hiding behind. Right. And he actually sort of looks like, um, oh man, me and names today. 
Christopher Lee. It's almost like Christopher Lee's back there, you know, his hair and his hairline looks the same. And anyway, so he's got the signature cat. Everything's great. Another thread in the Bond series that feels, uh, you know, makes it feel a little less episodic and more like this is, you know, one big story here that's happening. We find out that uh, the, the guys from America are not uh, making the money that they should be to make Blofeld happy. He figures that somebody must be embezzling and has already figured out who it is and fries the guy right there in front of everybody. Which, you know, of course, most everybody's like, uh, oh my God, they're killing somebody in front of me. But Largo almost looks bored by it. Like uh, now All the other people, they're like dabbing their foreheads and, you know, wiping sweat off their faces. And, you know, yeah. the, the one guy was like, oh, rubbing his face. They're all nervous except for Emilio Largo. Yeah, who's like... Who then, you know, takes like first spot in the new business, you know, to tell of, of his plan to take a hundred million dollars. Ooh, from hundred million. <laughs> exactly. So apparently, uh, what we know is that apparently part of this plan involves a health clinic near the Mako Air Base, which just happens to be where 007 is recuperating from his last mission. Uh, he meets this guy who's got a Tong sign on his arm. He Count sees Lippe. the tongue. What's that? Count Lippay. Count Lippay. Oh, thank you. I didn't. I never found out his name, so I'm glad you had that. So uh, I just call him Tong Guy the whole time. So uh, we. <laughs> so we see the Tong Guy leaving, and he decides he's going to investigate the room. And while he's inside the room, we see maybe Bond sees a guy with his face wrapped, trying to enter the room, looking for uh, the guy you just said. So Bond like decides he better get the hell out of there. So he gets out of there, and then we see the wrapped guy looking out his doorway as Bond leaves. Now we get an interesting thing that happens here. We got uh, the nurse who is uh, helping Bond with his massage, right? Yeah. Uh, and he does. She does not appreciate James Bond nor his advances. Oh, right? I disagree this entirely. Oh, okay. We can disagree on that. This is totally fine. Uh, I'm just saying. Very uh, uh, standoffish with him, you know. Like we see a lot. I mean, and we've seen in the past movies as well. We've seen that uh, the women are usually very flirty with Bond. You know, even right. later, Domino. She's not like put off by what you know what he's putting down, but she does sort of try and keep him in his place at the same time. But this, this no, no, she's scowling at him. You know, she's not very happy. With uh, with Mr. Bond in this respect. Yes, I think I think like her attitude towards him is not here, not now. I'm at work. I got to you know this is my professional thing. You can't right. screw it up for me. Cut it out. Yeah. Save yourself. This is my work scenario. I got to come back here when you're gone. You're gonna disappear. But I'm gonna still That's be fair. here because this is my job. So. And you know, the last thing he says to her, it is her, right? Another time, another place. Yep. Right? yep. So he's, he's acknowledging her objections, right? That like, yeah, I shouldn't have behaved this way in your workspace. Uh, so there's a, a really good kind of me too story that goes with, uh, with the actress. You see if I can find her, her real name. So many notes. I'll go on real quick. Let me know when you found it. But uh, 
He does ask about uh, the guy with the wrapped face. And uh, we find out he's there recuperating from a bad accident, apparently. She then uh, puts him on the rack. She says, 15 minutes on the rack. Uh, that'll be great. So then, uh, and this rack, it's kind of ridiculous. It's supposed to like stretch his spine or something like that. We're not really clear what this thing's supposed to do. But, Molly uh, Peters. Tenna what? Molly Peters was her name. Molly Peters. Okay. Yeah, so she tells this story um, of, she, you know, they're on the set. They're trying to get something done, and, and she's crying, right? Okay. And it was personal. It had nothing to do with work or, you know, anything on the set. But Sean Connery, you know, saw that she was in distress and said, who did something? What happened? I'll take care of it. You know, like, uh, you know, if someone mistreated you oh, nice. on the set. Someone was, was mean to you. Someone was inappropriate. Uh, I'll, you know, tell me his name. I'll go take care of him. Which right. Is, and she thought... You know, he was uh, such a gentleman, such a, a great guy, big heart. Um, that really stuck with her. Oh, that's awesome. Especially considering what's about to happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so 10 uncomfortable minutes pass on this rack thing. And then someone sneaks up on him and, and ups the switch and stupidly says, nice to have met you, Mr. Bond. And then the rack just goes crazy and it causes James Bond to pass out, right? It could be Tong Guy, right? That makes the most sense because they were introduced earlier, you know, in the movie. Uh, or I, I believe it is. You think it's Tong Guy? It could also be face wrapped guy. Just saying, you know, like he's making a little joke about, you know, having seen him in the room and right. followed him out. So it could have been him too. It's Reason probably Tong. The reason I think it's Calipe is because Bond then uh, locks the guy in the steam thing. No, yeah, but that's exactly my point. Like maybe he, you know, maybe he was wrong. Oh yeah, <laughs> maybe yeah. it wasn't him, he and it was his ward, you know. Yeah, certainly Bond thought it was Calipe. <laughs> yeah, he certainly did. That's what I'm saying. Uh, so anyway, uh, the nurse comes back in. Luckily, she comes in after ten minutes and uh, says that thing could have killed you. She says. And Bond's like, I think I might be six inches taller. <laughs> this is a great line. So then we have this like weirdly controversial thing that happens too because, you know, the, here he is. We got this chick. She's taking her job very, very, you know, seriously. Yeah. In my opinion, not playfully rejecting 007's attempts, but, you know. And then he, so here he is. He's basically blackmailing her into having sex with him, right? Could be one way to look at it. You look at it the other way of like, no, she's just saying not here, not now. Well, you know, we'll yeah, do so, this at another time. So one of the strategies, you know, and this is the problem. I forget who, who wrote this. Was it? I think it was Megan McArdle who wrote this about the problem of kind of the millennial college girl, right? Mm -hmm. And that when society's default position is women, you know, good girls don't behave that way. Right. It was easy for women to say no, and then easy for them to say yes, as long as you know we kind of keep it between ourselves. Don't ruin my reputation, right? Right. But that uh, we've lost that, and so um, everything becomes a negotiation in which um, you know, you're kind of worried about like how everyone is constantly judging you, and so you you don't have the social reinforcement to say no. And she is, I think this character is relying on that, right? She's doing one of these, no, I'm gonna say no until I say yes. See, I'm in control, uh -huh. not you, Mr. Bond. 
You know, when I say when I name the time and place, we're good. And when I say no, yeah. I mean no. So uh, it is after this that Bond finds Tong Guy. Who? What's his name again? Count Lippe. Count Lippe uh, in the in a self steamer. And so he throws a, he turns it up and then like locks him in this thing with a broom. Anyway, now we see him back in bed. He's back in bed with the nurse. We then see this redhead in bed who is uh, receiving a phone call. That's a wrong number. That's weird. Why show us that? The phone rings again and there's Major Tuval who's, uh, who's uh, ready to be picked up for something. His car is there. There's a knock on the door. He opens the door and he sees himself standing in the doorway. What has happened there? He is then gassed by himself. It turns out that this is this Angelo guy who we heard about in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the clinic. But he decides that, hey, $100,000 is not enough for me to be bought. You know, uh, these two years that I gave up of my life, I want a little more money. There's no one else who can do this. There's no one else who looks like me. The other guy is dead. So... Uh, so the, the, the lady whose name is, what's her name now? Uh, her name. You just, you said it earlier. I was hoping you'd had it offhand. It's a. Uh, is this Fiona? No. Yes, Fiona. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, Fiona uh, says, okay, no, no, no. We'll change it. We'll give you a quarter of a million dollars, but here's the $100,000 Don payment. So my question is, is does this guy think he's actually going to get away with this? Like blackmailing here, right, yeah, you know, yeah. like he's got to know that, uh, He's got to know that there's there's no way that like Blofeld was going to go along with this little ploy of his. Big mistake on his part, yeah. as it turns out. So uh, the other Duval then uh, gets in the car and off they go to the Air Force Base. We hear that this mission is a training mission and uh, that they're going to have two nukes, or well, two atomic bombs, as they call them, uh, aboard the uh, aboard the plane. Bond then decides to uh, go for a walk, uh, <laughs> leaving the nurse in the bed. Um, well, we see he's seen something, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. He sees the ambulance pull up. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, much to the nurse's chagrin, he decides he's going to go for this walk. We then see Tong's guy who's taking the stretcher, but then he hears Bond coming, so they, they skirt off into another room. Bond then notices an open window out uh, through the doorway. So he goes into the room and he finds the body on the rack of uh, the wrapped man's face. Uh, then suddenly uh, he's attacked and he knocks out a guy with the phone and then sets off the fire alarm. Boom, boom, boom. On the plane, we see fake Duval as he climbs up into the co-pilot seat and injects gas into the oxygen supply, taking out everybody in the cockpit. I thought this was a cool little thing here. It's a, you know, kind of spy, you know, there's like quick and easy way to take out all of uh, everybody in the uh, cockpit without having to like shoot everybody as, you know, another way that they might have gone about it. It was pretty neat. I like that. So then we get this like, it takes a, almost an entire minute for Duval to lower this plane, right? Yeah. Part of the reason is, is because first of all this plane had never been seen on screen before uh they basically built their own version of a you know of a tomahawk i think it is no um, it's, a, it's a british plane yeah it starts with a t i just can't remember what it was i guess tomahawk's a missile yeah um 
But uh, it was a plane that had never been seen on screen before, and they had all that instrumentation, which also, too, had never been seen on screen before. I feel like that's one of these big things. I mean, of course, this happens with Bond, like throughout the rest of you know history, yeah. where it's like, hey, we got this new cool thing. We want to show you it. Uh, you know, it's somebody jumping out of it, the halo jump, you know, like they do that in one of the movies. It's like, okay, uh, we can do this because this is a thing now. But, you know, so especially in this movie, though, we get a lot of like, no one's done this before, so we're going to do it and spend right. a lot of time showing it to you. Right, yeah, they do. So this is the Vulcan bomber. The Vulcan bomber, right. Which and, is, hey, another Star Trek connection. <laughs> right. And uh, so they they are asked by the, the the British government to destroy their model when they're yeah. done. So they actually do. <laughs> they, and uh, it's in the water when they destroy it because in the second half of the movie, it's sunk. Uh, it's sunk. And they just, they destroy it so that it can't be used to figure anything out about real Vulcan bombers. Uh -huh. And uh, it becomes a reef. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that's fun. Oh, so then we cut to these, like, two super British army men, right, talking about the plane being lost. And they're like, well, let's call the prime minister. Top priority, absolute secrecy. I just <laughs> love that. It just sounded so British to me. Top priority, absolute secrecy. Then we find ourselves aboard a lot, a yacht, I mean, a yacht. And Largo is there. He tells them uh, to turn on the underwater landing lights. And then the uh, plane sort of like lands on the water and just kind of sits there and then starts to sink. Uh, some of the divers come with that mini scuba thing, or not scuba, mini submarine that I was telling you about. It's like this rafty thing. And they, they came up to the ship to remove atomic bombs. But that's not all they're going to take out because Largo goes to the cockpit. I don't know for what, for the flight recorder. We're not sure. He's taking some kind of suitcase thingy out of the uh maybe it's the 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 codes or something i think it's the codes for the bombs codes for the bombs and uh he sees fake duval there stuck in a seatbelt, and uh despite having a knife in his hand leaves duval there to uh to, to die. drown yeah yeah we get another uh we get a uh, three minutes it, of underwater sequences here could be the money like oh I'm the hundred thousand i'm yeah. taking the money back and i'm leaving you here buddy Yep. No quarter million for you. Possible. Yeah, so. Yeah, no no quarter million for you, man. You get nothing. So we get. And you like it. Or maybe you so won't we get like uh, an entire three. <laughs> yeah, I know. You're not going to like it at all because you're going to be stuck <laughs> here in your seatbelt. <laughs> Thinking about what you did wrong. Exactly. So uh, then Largo calls Blofeld to let him know that uh, phase two is complete. And uh, Blofeld is happy to hear all about it. Uh, we then cut back to Bond, who's leaving the clinic and the nurse behind. Uh, she's, he's like, sorry, there's been a big hubbub at work. And uh, she's like, what do you do? Ah, well, I'm a licensed troubleshooter. <laughs> so uh, Bond dries off. <laughs> dries. <laughs> That's what Duval's doing now because he's underwater. Largo, actually, he's drying off. Um, Bond drives off, and uh, we see that he's being followed by Tongai. But... Um, but he is then quickly taken out by a motorcyclist who shoots a missile at the car and then the motorcycle speeds past Bond. Uh, well, we find out it's the cyclist who takes off, uh, she takes off her helmet and it's the redhead. It's the, uh, uh, it, it's uh, Fiona. And uh, 
we find out uh, earlier that uh, that Blofeld had said we must find the Count who jeopardized the mission by his choice of Angelo. Says Blofeld. A minute later, then we see the the motorcyclist dump the motorcycle with the missile thing it had in it with the missile launcher in it and she just leaves it in the side of a pond and drives on okay that seems like a very bad idea now you know like even like a couple of days later a couple of guys find this motorcycle and i was like all right let's rebuild this thing is this a missile launcher what's going on here what's happening so uh back in london bond gets back to the office and he's about to do his typical hat throw into money penny's chamber but someone moved the hat rack on him that's not cool uh, she tells him, oh, nope, not in there. The big meeting is actually happening in the comp conference room. And when we get there, it's just as you described it. This huge open like library area with these giant murals on the wall and whatnot. I'm like, this is a conference room? I was expecting like a big, I was expecting like the, you know, the, the Blofeld room. That's a conference right. room. This is like a library or something. I don't know what this is. So uh, you know, we see that, that Ken Adam is just as easy, just as at, at his element doing classical as he is mm -hmm. doing modern. It's an amazing space. Well, as, and as we've seen over and over by, you know, bon, or, uh, M's office, you know, also very, you know, uh, small and library-like with the books and the, the wood and everything and his padded <laughs> door, his leather padded door. Uh, every double O in Europe has been brought in. No, notice uh, that the double O in the third position, the third there, is a woman. Oh, I did notice that. It's it's very subtle. You have to know she's there and kind of be like looking for her and you're like, oh, there she is. Oh, my gosh. That's funny. I did not even know that. So uh, M makes a crotchety joke about everyone finally being here when double uh, O seven sits down. Uh, also, Bond, I think you, you probably noticed this. He He sits in the seventh chair. Also, which is funny, we get this exposition. We, you know, now we're telling everybody about the stolen nukes, and uh, they want a hundred million dollars or a hundred million pounds sterling. Otherwise, we'll blow you up. That's basically what's happening here. Uh, and then Bond's going through the packet, and he finds a picture of Duval in M's office. Bond uh, reveals uh, he, he's seen the dead guy, Duval. And uh, the general's kind of like, "Oh, well, can you be sure?" And then N cuts him right off. If 007 says that he's seen Duval alive, he has seen him. So off to Nassau goes Bond. We get more underwater shots of a girl swimming with the fishes. In the good way, not in the bad way. Uh, she then uh, gets stuck in the curl. Uh, in the curl. Gosh. So, gets stuck in the yeah. coral and then Bond rescues her. Okay, so normally what we would have seen in any of the other three Bond movies okay. right, are shots of an airport. Bond meeting his contact, right? Some spy craft, yeah. right? You know, how does this work? But we don't see any planes taking off. We don't see any planes landing. Bond's not in an airport. Bond isn't meeting a man. He's not covering his face so that the guy can't see him with a camera. None of that. We skip yeah. it all. And this is Kevin McClory, who felt like, we don't need it. We know, we, we know it already. Let's just go straight to the girl. Right. Now, I think, I mean, one of the problems I see in the, in the movies as they progress is that we get further and further away from the idea that Bond is a spy <laughs> and focus more and more on this other stuff, right? Yeah. And they needed people 
to want to bring it back and go, no, I want to see more, more trade craft. I want to see more, you know, the actual mechanics of the, the stuff and not just where did bond come from? Oh, it doesn't matter. Nobody cares. Yeah. He, he flew in last night, whatever. We don't have to, we, you know, because it's funny because we find out he has an assistant there. He's got yeah. Paula, right? He's got his, he, his man in Nassau, Pinder, uh, you know, and then even Felix, who, you know, we see all over the place uh, before we're actually introduced to him. Oddly you know, enough, it's crazy. There's a reason for that. And it okay, was, hit me. It was the film editor, right? So, again, we talked about Star Wars being rescued by the film editor. Yep. And it happens here, too, because as they're making the movie, one of the choices they realize one of the things they do differently, one of the things that McCrory you know, brings to the, the film is, you know what? This shouldn't be a movie about a spy who's going after a nuclear weapon. Because, well, mm -hmm. that's kind of obvious. He's saving the world, whatever. This should be a story about Bond rescuing the girl, about mm -hmm. Domino, Bond and Domino. Yeah. And so they, the editor is moving scenes around so, for example, um, one of the first places that we see Felix Leiter was supposed to happen much later in the movie. But they moved it up in the movie because they wanted this to... It was the scene where uh, Largo interacts with Bond. Oh, and okay. they, wa they wanted Domino and Largo and Bond together before... This is the editor's choice, right? Before... Right. Largo sends a man to kill Bond because hmm. that increases the personal, the triangle. It makes it more tense as opposed to like, well, I'm Largo and you're here to spot, you know, steal my, my nuke. I'm going to try to kill you. Then it's all about the bomb. Right. But, oh, you're, you're hanging out with my girlfriend. It's pissed me off. I'm going to send a guy to kill you. Now there's like this multi-layered thing about it. Right. So which yeah. more important to these people, the bomb or, or the little love triangle? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so all this cool stuff develops, and then later on he he meets Felix, and uh, but you know it, it doesn't matter because we know who these people are. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, I mean, sort of even don't matter eventually. Right. You know what I mean? It's like eh, okay, so we got Paula. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, with everything that happens to Paula, it's like it's not that big a deal, eh, you know. That we don't uh, that we know who she is, or that we become invested in her character, or anything. So after saving her from the uh, coral up top, we see. Uh, so this is just funny for me. This is this is kind of an in-world thing that I was thinking about. So up top, uh, Bond's boat won't start, and uh, Paula, who he's with, the other agent. Uh, another. Oh, hold on. This is another thought I had too. So we got the we got in the first scene we got the french spy who he's with right who's like um you know he even she even gives him the line like can i do something for you and he's like later you know and then uh and then here we got you know paula it's like why does everybody keep giving bond like these females you know what right. i mean especially for someone who's like this notorious womanizer who even m is like don't pay attention to the woman, find the bombs. You know, I mean, it's so funny. It's like, why do you keep pairing him up with these women? That's a bad idea. So it's actually- You got an HR lawsuit on your hand. Well, there's more than that, yeah. So rewatching this film, right? And especially okay. listening to the 30th anniversary 
um, commentary. Okay. It put me in mind of of the the James Bond role playing game. It was, you know, at, at that point I'd really only played D and D, and the D, the James Bond role playing game was a point build system. You didn't roll dice to make your character. Uh -huh. It it had all of these cool features, these cool mechanics, which to this day I'm like, a game needs to have something like this. A game needs to work this way. It was an amazing game. And one of the things it had as a weakness for Bond was um, this kind of weakness for the opposite sex, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't just, uh, you know, he'll, he'll romance the girl, but that he'll not do what he's supposed to do to save the girl, right? He's supposed to be stopping the bomb, but now he's going to rescue the girl. And in fact, the movie will set up the idea that he's going to come rescue Domino. Uh -huh. And then they don't do that, right? You know, they're they're right. cutting they're cutting between Bond in the cave and Domino on the boat. So, but it's true that you get this real sense that Bond can't help himself, right? But yeah. to get it, he he. And I have to say that the the uh, actress. Now I've taken my glasses off, so I'm, I have to be like Kirk and damn. <laughs> you know, the actress involved. Did I think a fantastic job? She she picked she made a series of choices about how to portray Domino, right? And so mm -hmm. when Largo is around, she looks down, she looks defeated, she looks sad. She only laughs when it's only she and Bond. Uh, mm -hmm. There, she's brighter, she's more animated. And the idea was to convey, you know, this is a this is a captured woman. This is not a free woman. She's not, you know, right. free to come and go. She's a she's an object owned by this man, and that Bond is going to rescue her. And so having Bond see this and think, oh, this is this is bad news. Look at look at the way she she acts around him. This is awful. I gotta I gotta get her out of this situation. Yeah. But that's his that becomes his dominant motivation through most of the movie. If it weren't like, you know, guys like Felix going, no, no, we gotta find the bomb. <laughs> I, I got a helicopter. Let's go. Yeah, M. Where's the bomb? You know, who knows? Find really this girl first. Yeah, <laughs> this girl's in trouble. I, I think her boyfriend mistreats her. <laughs> oh my god, that's not why you're in double O. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah, I mean it's subtle. I, you know, I'd never really noticed how much. And it's in part because you know, in the documentary, they were talking about. Flipping the A and the B plot. The way it was written, the Dukes is the big story and saving Domino is the B story. And then as they make right. the film, and you know, it really once they're editing it, they realize what they've got, they're like, no, no, we have to make the the, the B story the A story. And the A story the B story. And so Claudia Auger's performance is one of the things that makes them go, Oh, wait a minute, we've got gold here. We've got, you know, something that makes this work at a deeper level than we than we realized it's it's a subtle excellent performance nice i wonder how purposeful it was too you know because sometimes when you're as an actor when you're in a situation you're just like a, i just feel like this is the way i'm gonna I, i'm doing this and blah blah, right. blah. like I, I i wonder how aware she was even that she was doing it so it's kind of cool 
So the second thing too that I want to bring up in world is like, so now imagine you're Domino, okay? This guy just saved you. He can't start his boat. And he's like, I'm going to be late for an appointment. Can you, you, you take me back to the, the beach? And uh, she's like, oh yeah, sure I can. So he's like leaving this poor woman, this other poor woman stranded in this boat. Like just, you gotta be thinking she's like, and then he's like, uh, by the way, you want to go have lunch? What about this appointment you were gonna go for? Like you left that poor woman stranded there, and uh... she's got a radio. <laughs> right, exactly. I'll, I'll phone yeah. someone back at the dock. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So uh, this might be a time to talk about yeah. uh, uh, the glamour of Star Trek and James Bond. Right. Yeah, hit me. So. so when, and I think it's a combination of, of Terrence Young and Kevin McClory, both of them were moving in the direction of you know, less spycraft and more sophisticated locations and situations. And uh -huh. now that we're on the beach and we see these boats and these yachts, and there are references to real locations in the Bahamas, the best nightclub, uh, Dom Perignon 65, mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, vehicles and and like actual holidays and snorkeling so these are things that you know like the audience could do we right. could go to the bahamas we could go to that restaurant we could live the life of james bond right sophistication elegance tuxedos casinos and you know one of the things about glamour is you know that it, it takes you someplace else it takes you to a kind of imagined place where you're a better person doing better things and in star trek so you've got things like the technology you've got visiting other worlds you've got the kind of future envisioned by edith keeler right that's that's certainly glamorous yeah but there's also um you know the everyone is competent so Virginia Postrel, who wrote a book on glamour, um, realized that Star Trek had some glamour in it. She was trying to tease out exactly what it is. So she uh, did a survey of like 1,400 Star Trek fans. And one of the, so a lot of it was, was not surprising. You know, the cool technology, transporters, phasers, warp drive, that's all obvious as cool. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that came up that really surprised her was how many people said, this is an ideal workplace. I want to work there. Everyone is competent. The <laughs> boss isn't crazy. Yeah. If you have a if you have a colleague who's actually a problem, he either stays behind, you know, like the guy did in the carbonite maneuver, or yep. he's dead by the end of the episode. These are competent people working as a real team, accomplishing real things. Who doesn't want to work there? Right? right. And so you know, this idea of this glamorous future. And of course, Kirk, you know, and Bond are both 60s Renaissance men. They are, um, you know, they're, they're competent, they're confident, they're libidinous. They are experts at everything. And, you know, they're kind of defined by their glamour and sophistication. And what constitutes this glamour may be different. For Bond, it's, it's caviar, it's you know, here I am in, in the Bahamas, I'm at the best restaurants, I'm wearing a tuxedo. And for Bond, or I mean for Kirk, it's 
I'm captain of the Starship Enterprise, this beautiful looking ship that just takes me wherever I want to go into the future, into a utopian future. And there's like all this technology and cool stuff where I can, where you can be a, a better version of yourself doing better things than you are now. You're going to be transported. Right. You're, you've got this promise of escape and, and transformation. But you also have this, when you watch this, whether it's Bond in the Bahamas or wherever Bond goes, or Kirk on the Enterprise, you have this longing and this desire. I want that. I want to live on that starship. I want to go to the Bahamas. I want to be a scuba diver. I want teleportation. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and they both have this kind of grace, you know, it, which is um, what. So I'm going to use the Italian Renaissance, you know, the Sprezzatura uh, from the, the book The Courtier, the art that conceals art, right? Because being James Bond is not, in fact, effortless. He trains for mm -hmm. it all the time. And with Kirk, we can see a little bit more of what goes on behind, right? But only enough to make us go, oh, this is for real. I could really be that guy or in this world, right? Uh -huh. And so, you know, we, we want to inhabit these spaces. And I think that's one of the things that really links Bond and Kirk when you watch them is this, this sense of glamour being transported to somewhere way, way cooler than whatever it is you're doing. Right. Well, then they're both like, <clears throat> to say what you said a little less eloquently, I mean, they're both, <laughs> really, they're both, they're both basically like cool, right? Okay, I mean, you yeah. know, every, everybody wants to be these guys. I mean, they say that, they say that about Bond all the time. Like everyone wants to be Bond. Every woman wants yeah. Bond, blah, blah, blah. Like so Kirk we, is the same way. We get that, that kind of parody of this 60s Renaissance man, this confident libidinous guy in that, uh, in Down With Love. The Ewan McGregor character, who's the—he's he, an actual writer, but he pretends to be an astronaut, uh, yep. man's man, ladies' man, man about town. The way right. he's playing him is this kind of uh, both as his like real writery self, but then as his astronaut self, as this kind of caricature of this '60s Renaissance man. Yeah, sorry, I'm not going to be able to make our appointment. I got waylaid. Mm, <laughs> you sure do seem to get waylaid. <laughs> Love that line. It's actually funny. I was going through my Xbox profile very recently and realized that, like, under description of, like, me, I wrote ladies' man, man's man, man about town. So that's still on my Xbox description. Ridiculous. <laughs> See, because we uh, all so want to be that, that 60s Renaissance man. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. They're so debonair. Yeah, it's fantastic. So uh, back on the beat, we see that there are two people following them. One is like uh, this guy in like a bath beach robey thing. And then the other is this guy in a light blue gray suit. Uh, we find out that one of them is uh, following Domino because he belongs to the Guardian or is following after for the Guardian. Uh, when she's leaving to go then meet her Guardian, as she calls him, Bond slips, maybe slips and calls her Domino. She said, uh, how did you know that's what my friends call me? It's on your ankle bracelet. Forgot we did that already, but we're doing it again. Um, that night, then, we're in the casino. As he's walking into the casino, he runs into Fiona, who, like, gives him this, like, smile, and then, like, they do a sidestep. Oh, excuse me. Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. And then they move on. He then uh, sits down and plays some uh, Banco. 
which uh, we've seen Bond play many times before. Again, another one of those things that seems to be a super like sophisticated gambly thing that uh, which is that, funny uh, because it's a game with no skill, right. right? So, you know, at least with uh, with Baccarat, the the kind of root form of the game, you know, uh -huh. you can decide to to stay on fifteen or whatever. But Shemin Defer, it's like the, the rules decide whether you stay or don't stay. You're, it's like yeah. rolling dice, right? We're spinning a wheel. There's no yeah. skill. Which is a, a weird choice for... Except in the sense that it reveals the nerves of steel of these guys. Right? Right. I'm putting all this money down and I have no control over the outcome because, you know, it's, it's on the cards or it's on the dice. I don't... You know, it's, I'm not being clever. I didn't read the other guy. It's not like poker. Or... Yeah. Uh, or like actually playing Baccarat where you could not do the obvious thing. Exactly. So so is it without going to 10? Is that what it is? Is that what Benko is? Is like uh, who has the highest card set without going yeah, to 10? Without going, without going, I don't know if it's 10, but oh. in, in Shemin Defer and Baccarat, it's 21. Well, it's so weird because there's the one scene where where uh, where Largo has eight, and then Bond's like, I have nine. You know, and he's got a king, but he's actually right. got a nine. You know what I mean? So it's like, I don't know. I was just wondering. I was going to look up the rules on Banco, but then I was like, like eh, it's fine. if we ever do a, a, some kind of uh, Bond go through, I'll, I'll learn about Banco then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but this is the kind of scene that I love, you know, the, the, the scene where like Bond sort of makes himself known to the bad guy, but they're right. in public, so we can't like do anything about it. And Largo's like, well, somebody has to lose. And Bond's like, yeah, I thought I saw a specter on your shoulder. <laughs> what do you mean, Bond? The specter of defeat, uh, that your luck is due to change. <laughs> the funny thing is, is that we know Largo is the bad guy, but all right. Bond really knows is that is that she is, or, or that he is Domino's guardian. Like that's right. really all he knows. Except Largo and, is wearing a specter ring, and he's got a big he's got a big boat. <laughs> well, and he's got a big boat, right? But the specter ring, let's. Well, that's just ridiculous to me. It's like, hey, uh, I'm uh, part of a super secret society. Uh, we're bad guys. We're basically terrorists. Uh, but, uh, hey, if you're wearing this ring, you will know that we are part of the bad guy squad. Mm -hmm. It's just ridiculous to me. It's like, how are we going to let uh, anybody know that we're a part of this bad group? Oh, I got it. I mean, like, it's one thing if you're in, like, a gang. That's one thing. But it's like, no, these are, like, highly sophisticated terrorists. Well, like Count Lippe. don't want... What's that? Like Count Lippe, who had a tattoo. Yeah, exactly. The tongs. Anyway. Bond beats Largo uh, three hands at 500 bucks a pop. Domino wants to leave to get a drink, but Largo's like, no, I want to make my money back. Uh, so uh, Bond's like, oh, well, allow me to take her. We'll go have some caviar. So uh, as they leave, you, there's a shot of Felix in a tuxedo sitting at the table, which I love. He's just like hanging around, following him around. Um, I was also trying to imagine like what everybody else is thinking at the table, right? right. Cause there's like all these like other nondescript people who are watching these two guys just basically put their proverbial dicks on the table. You know, <laughs> they're like, who's this bigger? Let's see. 
Yeah, I love it. Like, Everybody... you're like a tourist from Florida. You own a car dealership, right? And here you are, yeah. you're in the Bahamas, and you're like, who are these guys? Little do right? you know, they're happening? like battling over the fate of the world in terms of the nuclear, <laughs> the nuclear uh, they're just sitting there. extortion. Yeah. Yeah, that's so great. They go off, they have some caviar. Uh, Domino says she wants to dance. Bond, li Bond is like, sure, let's go dance. So they go dance, and then uh, Largo shows up and uh, invites him to lunch on Sunday. As they're walking away, he asks Domino, uh, what, were they what were you just talking about? I didn't quite hear. So I wondered, and she tells him the truth too. She's like, uh, oh yeah, he just said that he just wondered if we were sleeping on board tonight. And he's like, interesting. The question is, I wondered if you really heard her and if this was like a loyalty test he was doing right. to see if she would actually tell him. As opposed yeah, so, to just being like curious. So th this particular actor, who by the way is, is Sicilian, was sensitive to the way Sicilians were often portrayed as heavies. Uh -huh. And one of the, you know, mobsters, right? So right. He, he played a lot of heavies. But uh, one of the things that really attracted him to this role was that Largo had so much sophistication. Mm -hmm. He was uh, he wasn't like a thug. Um, he wasn't just a gangster who had come off the street and was just a tough guy. He was a, he right. was like Bond. He belonged in the James Bond world. Sophisticated, um, you know, gambling, casinos, tuxedos, caviar, champagne, yachts. Right, uh, Adolfo Celli was his name. Whereas the way he's played in Never Say Never Again by. Oh, um, I'll tell you in a minute. It'll okay. come to me. He had a lot more menace to him. Uh-huh. He played it much more where you felt like he was the kind of guy who would, you know, trick Domino. And then if she gave the wrong answer, he'd hit her. Yeah. Which he does, I think, in the movie. Yeah, he does. He does yeah. slap her at one point. Yeah. You compare the two Largos, you know, Adolfo Celli gets this, uh, this much more sophisticated, subtle Largo. Yeah. Someone who's a little more of a manipulator. Until right. the torture scene, of course. Yeah, right. <laughs> then it and turns then he's out like he's, he's brutal. Yeah, exactly. Klaus Maria Brandauer, by the there way. There we go, yeah. That's who the bad guy was. Never say never. Also, by the way, did you know it was directed by uh, Irving Kirshner? Who, had direct, who directed Empire Strikes Back. There you go. Interesting little thing there. Yeah, two big franchises for that guy. Um, as, as Domino and Largo walk away, we cut back to a shot of Bond, and right there over his right shoulder is uh, his sunglasses guy again. Who is this guy? We don't know yet. So uh, Bond goes to his hotel room, uh, but passes by his room and goes into the next one. He then walks through the double doors of the like the attached room area, finds this tape recorder hidden in a book, and we hear that somebody has entered the room. Uh, the camera like follows the uh, imaginary footsteps of the uh, where this guy was, and they realize he's probably in the bathroom. And just as he's about to like reveal the guy is in there, we hear a knock at the door. The door opens, and there's sunglasses guy saying, "Hello, double O." And he's quickly punched by Bond, who tells him to be quiet. They go back. This whole scene is a little bit weird for me. But anyway, he goes back into the bathroom, turns uh, on the shower. Right. And the guy's like, oh, my God, ah, water. Oh, Jesus. Oh, no. <laughs> Basically. Right. Uh, <laughs> I'm melting. 
Finally! Nice so Bond, like, so Bond quickly disarms him. Right, right. And, uh, and then we find out that Sunglasses Guy is actually Felix Slider. Shock right. of shocks. And uh, Bond had socked him because he was about to see... I had to hit you because you were about to say 007, which he now says in front of the bad guy. I was like, you, well, you start, you hit him because he was, oh, okay, whatever. Uh, <clears throat> he tells, uh, he tells the guy like, uh, Chow Lago, I, I, uh, I throw the small fish back. You're going to shoot me in the back, says the bad guy. And he's like, give him his gun. Now go. <laughs> and then off the guy runs to go talk to Largo. So we see the guy drive back to Largo uh, and give the bad news. Largo, of course, is pissed and tosses him to a literal shark tank. Dun, dun, dun. So no Mark Cuban here, people. This was done at a, uh, like a, a real guy's house, right? Yeah. And he had two swimming pools, a saltwater pool and a freshwater pool. And they're like, this is fantastic because we can put sharks in the saltwater pool. It was difficult to keep them alive. So, you know, they, uh, but because it was a real house, the people who lived there were there. They did not move out while the filming took place. They wanted to see it. Yeah. And they would have people over. And the crew would say wow. it, was, it was disturbing that you'd have these tipsy people like going up and looking at the shark tank with a little too much to drink. And you're like, I really hope they're not going to fall in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. That's some kind of insurance thing, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> so the sharks eat up the bad guy and bad things happen. We cut back to the next day. Oh, yeah. And so uh, Pinder, Paula, Felix, and Bond all meet up. We also find out that the Big Band is struck seven times at, uh, at six o'clock to acknowledge that, uh, that uh, Britain had agreed to the terms of giving them the hundred million in uh, sterling. And then Q turns up. Out of nowhere. From Q, we get a, a Geiger counter. Q says, now I want you to take special care of this. To which Bond says, I treat everything you give me with contempt, I know. <laughs> Love that line. He gets a camera. Now this is, this is, this is, I've tried to ask people about this and nobody gets it. He gets a camera that can take underwater pictures and takes eight shots in quick succession. Why is that important? I have no idea. Taking eight, eight pictures of the same thing underwater. But there we go. We also get a flare gun. We get this like little um, bat breather, so, basically. So one of the guys who was involved in this, and I, I want to say it was, uh, I, don't remember, I don't remember who it was now. Um, he'd worked on Sea, Sea Craft, Sea World, Sea, Sea Hunt. Sea Hunt. Uh, sea Hunt where they had actually used these flares and they were like no longer used anymore. And they had to go to the, they'd have them specially made. They couldn't oh, like okay. climb off the shelf. Gotcha. So yeah, he gets the bat breather and then he gets the, a homing receiver that you swallow and then people will be able to find you. Cut back to a bunch of British guys, including M. Uh, we find out that Spectre wants all the money in gems. And so one of the guys says, get on the phone to De Beers. So we get uh, there's a, a, a cut scene here. Okay. Um, at the end of the Q stuff. Yeah. Where Bond starts leaving and Q calls him back. And Bond comes back sh sheepishly. 
and uh, you know Desmond Llewellyn liked that scene because it established that like the real relationship between them was that Q actually was in charge and yeah. Bond was actually bravado. Right. And uh, but they cut it, and he's like, <laughs> "Oh well." Yeah. <laughs> So uh, this night we got fifty-five hours left now before uh, before the deadline. Now we got a ticking clock, right? Which we have gotten a lot of in 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 Star Trek. You yep. know, a lot of this. Okay, now on top of everything else, you know, we're we've got this ticking clock that's coming, and it's the deadline's coming, and oh my gosh! And Sulu's gonna watch that clock closely. <laughs> yes, he is. He likes clocks. Read it off to us. <laughs> uh, it's like the end of that Doctor Who episode with the countdown. So uh, that night, uh, Bond uh, jumps in the water and scubas his way over to Largo's yacht. He takes his pictures, but then is caught by one of the guards who is circling underneath the underneath the yacht. Uh, Bond uh, takes off. So they follow him because they're following the bubbles on the top of the water that's coming from his scuba gear. So he takes off the scuba gear and uses the, uh, the bat rebreather that Q gave him and uh, makes his way to shore. As he gets there, he, a car pulls up. It's a blue Mustang. He flags it down, and we he gets in the car, and we know it's the red-headed assassin. Ooh. Right. She's Fiona. She speeds up the car to 100 miles an hour, driving down this road, blah, blah, blah. And it's funny because Bond isn't really too – he doesn't look very nervous. Right. He says he is afterwards, but he doesn't look very nervous. And I wonder if that's because he's like, well, she knows how to drive. That's for sure. You know what I mean? If it's like – he just gets it. He's like, oh, okay, she's going to be fine. I'm not worried about it. I think it's like these crazy. gambling games mm -hmm. in which could be real purpose of this is to just see how, t how brave you are, whether you're willing to put yourself into crazy situations and you don't like panic or freak out or right. cry or cry. Thank for mama. It's <laughs> a good idea. Yeah. She too, by the way, is wearing the specter ring. Ridiculous! These people giving away their who they're a part of. Anyway, so uh, the door and say hello, 007. Well, that's true. Good point. <laughs> uh, so they pull up in front of the hotel. She's like, "Well, we're here at my hotel." He's like, "Convenient. It's mine too." I can't remember what she says. Something about like not being. Some men uh, don't like being uh, driven. No, that's some right. Men he... don't like being taken for a ride. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, meanwhile, then they develop the film and they find out that there are two giant bay doors on the bottom of the uh, Disco Valenti, which is Largo's ship. That must have been where they hid the bombs. Oh, so it was all done underwater. No wonder why we never saw anything. But the next day, they're in a helicopter. They're searching for the remains of the plane. At Largo's, we see the redheaded assassin Fiona speaking with Largo. Largo wants Bond dead. But uh, Fiona says, no, we can't kill him yet because that will alert the world that he must have been on the right track. Uh, don't worry, when the time is right, I will kill him. And they pull, and she shoots a, the, uh, a plate right out of the air. Boom. Uh, Bond then arrives at Largo's house and sees the blue Mustang parked out front. He even makes a jab a little bit later like, oh, I thought you had company. Uh, we get more fun here between Largo and Blonde. Bond, uh, Largo's carrying a gun, and he's like, uh, oh, it's Dr. Leitch's gun. And uh, Largo's like, oh, you know a lot about guns? I know a little bit about women. <laughs> so uh, 
Then we meet Vargas by name. His passion is killing, we find out from Largo. So then Largo takes some skeep shooting. This is, I love this scene. Bond plays dumb. He's like, oh, it can't be too hard. Why don't you pull one for me? Largo waves his hand and plate goes flying in the air and just from the hip, Bond the shoots hip. it. Yeah. It was so great. Uh, Largo then asks Bond to take Domino to the local Mardi Gras thing. Back in the uh, Paula's hotel room, the redheaded assassin walks in, not realizing she's going to be there, or we don't really know. But uh, she runs into Paula and is like, oh, uh, it's funny, Mr. Bond must have uh, double booked us. How crazy. And then Paula is knocked out. Oh, my gosh. At the Mardi Gras, Bond, Bond is with Domino when Felix shows up and tells him about what happened to Paula. Uh, Paula. He then leaves Domino with Felix and then takes off to uh, rescue Paula, right? So we got another rescue situation happening here. He also tells Pinder, like, I want all the lights on the island shut off. So he makes his way to Palmier, which is Largo's house, where Paula is being kept. Bond takes out this guard. The lights go out and he sneaks in to rescue Paula. But the emergency lights suddenly come on, only to find that Paula has taken a cyanide capsule. No faith that Bond would have, uh, would have found her. Then suddenly an alarm goes off and they find uh, the, the, the guard that Bond had taken out. A shootout occurs. Bond drops his gun on the roof. And then on the other side of the roof, he jumps off and then a guy jumps in there and the, the fight goes to the pool. Then Largo covers the pool with this thing and uh, releases the sharks. So then the sharks cuts in and then Bond cuts open the guy. And so that when the sharks come in, the sharks go right after the, uh, right after the dead guy. Now, there's a funny thing here that happened. Ken Adams had promised uh, Sean Connery that he was going to build up these like plexiglass little areas where the shark was going to go right through there, except that he was short one piece of plexiglass. And wouldn't you know it, that when the shark comes out the thing, he goes right to where there is no plexiglass and goes right after Sean Connery. So if you, get the, if you look at Connery's face there as Bond, he's a little bit freaked out that there's a shark coming after him. Uh, so that was the real Sean Connery there. Then Bond makes his way through the tunnel, climbs out of the uh, uh, the shark tub and makes his way off. Back at the hotel, he enters uh, Paula's room and he hears someone in the bathtub. He walks in to find Fiona there. She's like, well, don't just stand there. Give me something to put on. And so he hands her her shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Love that moment too. She gets out saying, it's so strange. I didn't know that you lived next door. Bond's like, yeah, it's like it was on purpose or something. Uh, <laughs> get, out of your, get out of your clothes, she says. You'll catch your death of cold. A veiled threat there. Uh, and the next scene, they're in bed together, and it's not, not long before Vargas shows up. Well, but before, we, before we get to okay. Vargas. So sure, the, act, the actress here. Okay. Uh, I have so many notes, I can't find the names. I the know, actress says, you know, this, this was a time when there were standards codes and there were things you couldn't show and there wouldn't be any nudity in movies like this. And so they had to do things with suggestion, right? Okay. So the filmmaker had developed a language of how to suggest that people were about to have sex so that people were in a moment of passion when you couldn't actually show stuff like that. Uh -huh. So you get this shot in which they show the bed frame. And we see later from another angle that the bed frame is against the wall, right? 
So we're, basi <laughs> yes. we're basically the wall, looking at the bed at the headboard. Yep. And like, so she's grabbing onto the the headboard with her with her hands. So we see her fingers tense up, and so this is supposed to convey to the audience, "Oh, look, pleasure." Yes. She said this was way more erotic than mere nudity, and uh, I think she's right. So as we said, Vargas shows up here. Uh, she compliments him on hiding the gun that he had put on. I didn't see you put on the gun, she says. He's like, it was under the pillow the whole time. They head back to the Mardi Gras thing. Uh, are they there to go pick up Domino? We don't really know. Or do they get just get stuck in the road? I think they just get stuck in the road. But anyway, a drunk then sticks his head in the window, and he's got a bottle of Bacardi in his hand. Bond uses this the alcohol here to uh, pour it all over the car and then yeah. use Fiona's cigarette to start a fire in the car. He then runs off. Uh-oh, but not before being shot in the leg. So it's funny. So we got this moment here where he ends up shot in the leg. That's not good for Bond. And also in the last scene when he drops his gun. So we're getting a little more of this like, uh, okay, maybe he's not completely infallible, right? right. Where Bond can make mistakes. Using the dripping blood from his leg, they follow Blonde up through the parade, onto a float, and eventually to a club. A club, oddly enough, called the Kiss Kiss Club. Yep. Hmm, strange. It is at this club. So this is just one of my favorite scenes in this movie, right? This, this, it's just awesome. Bond picks up this innocent lady, starts dancing with her, and then all of a sudden uh, Fiona shows up and cuts in. The, the innocent woman's all pissed, like, well, you didn't need to tell me your wife was here. Gosh. Yeah. And she runs off. And so he starts dancing with Fiona. He looks around. He sees two bodyguards over here. He sees two bodyguards over here. And then he sees, like, Vargas making his way behind the band. He's keeping an eye on it. He's keeping an eye on it. And then he sees Vargas put the gun out. And then just as he shoots, he turns Fiona until she's shot in the back. And then he quietly puts her down in someone's chair and says, my wife's going to sit this one out. <laughs> she's dead tired. <laughs> I love it. Now, of course, yeah. the question then becomes, why doesn't Vargas keep firing? Either way, Bond gets away. That's what we know for sure. Yeah. Everybody probably wanted to scatter from the dead body. Let's just say that's the case. Back in London, the ticking clock continues. Uh, 14 hours left. One of the guys is like, uh, oh, I thought your man Bond was onto something. I thought he, uh, I thought he was going to do something. And uh, M says, well, if 007 says that he saw something, 14 hours left. More helicopter, but this time... Uh, this time, they find the shark grotto, and in the grotto, they find the camoed plane. The golden grotto, they call it. Uh, then we get more shots underwater as Bond searches search the plane and finds Domino's brother, or Domino's fake brother, or whatever, and he takes his watch and his dog tags. He then magically finds Domino again, and they have apparently sex underwater behind a rock. With bubbles. With bubbles. Well, they had to take off their masks, because how else are they going to make out? And one of the things uh, they do is, is they, they, like they had a whole tank there just to make bubbles. And the idea right. was merely to convey something's going on back here. Yep. Again, exactly. this more, you know, suggestive rather than, than show you what was going on. And exactly, because then it's in the next scene when they're coming out of the beach. Whoops. And then when they come out of the beach, he basically says, like, I hope we didn't scare the fish. You so, know, it's like he lets you, he lets yeah. you know that it happened. Yeah. Right. And there had been, uh, like, they had thought, like, in the bubbles, like, they did a shot where they put, like, a bikini top 
in the bubbles. Oh, really? And then like, no, that's no, that's funny. too much. Let's dial it back. Just the bubbles. So then here we get this uh, scene on the beach where uh, he's trying to tell her about her brother, but she thinks it's him leaving. Oh, you're going to leave me like all the other men have in my life. But uh, he just finally shows her the watch and the dog tags, right? So she kind of gets it. <clears throat> and then interestingly here, we get this like pickup shot. You can tell it's a pickup shot because she's obviously in chroma key like around oh. the... Chroma key. Huh? Chroma key. So Terrence Young would have fun, you know, with his with his actors. And so, and I forget who tells the story. It's one of the women. I think it may be uh, Fiona, the actress who plays Fiona. Uh-huh. But it may have been Domino, I forget. But she's saying, he, he, one day they go in to watch the dailies, right? And okay. so they're driving in the car. But instead of the road being chroma keyed in behind them, Terrence Young had put in the ocean for laughs. You know, like, <laughs> look at this funny scene. Oh, we filmed people <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> wow. Yeah. We got but nine yeah, million to spend. <laughs> Let's blow some money on a film print that no one will ever see <laughs> That's right. for a laugh. Yeah, so you can see her cry, crying, and it's clearly a chroma key shot. But then in the next scene, you know, she's back on the beach in real life with Bond. So it's interesting. I, I guess they felt that the emotion in the, of that scene wasn't there, and so that they needed to go back and reshoot it. Right. So as they're sitting there, she sees Vargas sneaking up behind them, and uh, he's like, "Oh, really?" So then he like slowly like leans back and grabs the gun and shoots it real quick, and boom, harpoon through Vargas. I think he got the point. She makes him promise to kill Largo. He's like, okay. She's like, oh, and also there's this one other thing that may not be important. Uh, there's this bridge that Largo doesn't want anybody to go near that's right by his house. You might want to check it out. Oh, gee, thanks, Domino. You think I want to go check that out? I probably do. You're right. So Bond goes there and he finds a team laying out a bunch of scuba gear. And then they leave. So the Bond can go check it out. And then a couple hours later, they come back. They wait till nightfall. So Largo arrives with the team. Bond knocks out a guy and takes a set of scuba gear for himself, which is clever, except that, that all that they do is scuba to the Disco Volante and then get on the Disco Volante and then drive off. I mean, I guess that this puts Bond on the ship, so that's a good thing. But in the real world, why are we doing this? Who knows? Maybe they didn't want to see all those scuba guys underwater again. They didn't want to see all the scuba people getting on board the Disco Volante. He's having a party. What does that matter? So uh, they reach the small island and then back underwater. Uh, they're using these cool underwater uh, rafts, these mini subs. And uh, they make their way to this underwater cave entrance, which Largo opens. They swim in and there are the nukes. Oh, my gosh. They start to load up the nukes, and then suddenly Bond, or then suddenly for no reason, Largo recognizes Bond, who uh, then is chased and gets into a fight with one of the guys, but Largo leaves with everybody else, and like, we'll leave Bond and this other guy locked into this cave. It'll be fine. Three more minutes of underwater fun, by the way. So much underwater. Uh, aboard the, the Disco Volante, Domino decides she's going to use her camera Geiger counter they and had start to come up with it. 
they had to come up with different way. Like they had to develop technology for all this underwater filming. Yeah. Well, the, apparently, I, I saw this in the documentary that I watched. That it, it was the the group of uh, uh, of people who who did Flipper, who did all the underwater shots for Flipper. So they came in and yeah, like you said, they experimented with new stuff and blah blah blah. But uh, but yeah, it was all this underwater guy, and he's the guy who actually directed a bunch of those underwater fight scenes, like that were that yeah. are coming, that are right. on their way in. So she's using her camera Geiger counter that uh, Bond gave her. And uh, it's reading radiation, but then she's caught by Largo, who's not happy. Oh, your friend Mr. Bond gave this to you, did he? And he throws her into the bedroom. Meanwhile, underwater, Bond finds his way into a cave. There's an opening way up top, but he can't get to them, so he's stuck in the cave. Then we get a scene of uh, Largo threatening to torture Domino. Uh, See, this is so, so good in terms of the filmmaking, because up till this point, they have made us feel like Bond is like, made it his priority to rescue this girl from this bad relationship. And right. here she is at the moment of most need. And Bond is trying to escape. <laughs> Where is yeah. he going to go? We, we're, we're hoping, we're invested in the idea that Bond is going to come rescue her. But that's not what happens. It's like when you see nukes, you're like, oh, wait a minute, this is for real. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, this is something going on here. Yeah. <laughs> People are at work. So, uh... We get the scene of Largo who's trying to torture Domino to say, uh, you know, how much does Bond know? And then uh, they're interrupted to be told that the bombs are ready to be launched. Give up on hope, my dear, he says. There is no one to rescue you. Uh, the next morning, uh, morning has come. Felix is uh, following the homie capsule that Bond had swallowed. Then through one of the holes in the ceiling, Bond uh, expertly shoots a flare out of it and uh, lets Felix in the helicopter know where he is. Uh, I was trying to imagine what would have happened if that would have been me <laughs> with the flare there and trying to get it through the hole. I'm sure I would have missed and it would have gone off in the cave. That's probably what would have, what would have happened to me. So uh, the helicopter then sends down a rope. Bond climbs up it. He tells Felix that the bombs are aimed for Miami and that uh, the Disco Volante is where the bombs are right now. Underwater action starts here. We see Largo and his crew. And then there's a plane that flies over. And good guys drop out of the plane. They're in orange. And uh, they drop out of the plane and they start scooping. Yeah, you see what happens when you don't actually kill Bond? You just leave him and hope he's going to be, he's right. going to die on his own? Nope. Nope. He tells everybody to come running. And so the CIA, I'm assuming, and the Coast Guard and people come rushing in. Harpoons are being shot in both directions. People are dying left and right. Bond is now dropped into the into the fray. More underwater melee happens. Largo sees Bond heading for the bombs. Bond stops to help a good guy. And it's funny because there's throughout all the rest of this fight, you'll see Bond stop to help a guy, and then like three other three bad guys die because Bond has stopped to uh, to help one guy. So we were talking about the director in this this fight, right? Yeah. So so he was like. All right, uh, crew, my peoples, I want you to come up with every way someone could die underwater. Right. Because there's going to be so much fighting, we can use them all. So he had already <laughs> had, like, you know, a list of things that he thought they should do. You know, we're going to cut the hose and the guy, you know, drowns. We're going to stab a guy, harpoon a guy. But he's like, you know, give me everything. And they're like, you see all these different ways to suggest, oh, someone just died. Whether it's a knife falls on the ground, you know, underwater, lands on a shell, yeah. you're like, somebody had to die. 
Well, you know, it's funny because there's a couple scenes where um, Bond is, you know, cuts the air tube off of, you know, some guy. And I'm like, why isn't everybody doing this? Like, that's yeah. the easiest way to get out of the, I'm just going to cut your air tube and, you know, you can either go away or stay here and die. It's your choice. You decide. Um, so Bond uh, tricks three guys into following him, him into a boat that is sunk there. Uh, he does the same thing where he leaves his scuba gear and uses the bat rebreather yeah. to uh, go out a window. He sees the three guys go in. He drops a grenade in. They all die. So many more underwater scenes are happening. We're like six minutes into this like slow motion underwater fighting, you know, so, and harpoons. While they're filming this. Hit me. Uh, they're like, you know, Sean Connery was a really good swimmer. Uh-huh. And he learned how to be a really good scuba diver. But his time was so valuable and it was taking so long to shoot the movie. And they had four four camera teams. Yeah. There was, there was so much film work to be done that most of the swimming is done by his stunt double. Yep. Because even though Connery could have done it, they're like, we need Connery someplace else. <laughs> he's, he's got other things he needs to be doing. That's right. And my next note is, but boy, I love this music. There is something about the music in this movie that is like so purely Bond to me. You know what I mean? I love the... Well, I'll just play a little bit of it. This early bit here sounds a bit like Star Trek. I guess it is the 60s. This is the part I love. That that action music is so exciting. I mean, plus, you know, you just got Thunderball itself, which has that whale, you know, bum, 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 dun, dun, you know, that sting right there, which right. is so great that they use effectively throughout the entire movie. Just something about this score that I really love. And then when I really thought about it, I also realized that this was one of the albums, one of the soundtracks Dad had on vinyl yeah. back in the day. So sure. I'm sure I've got many... Uh, you know, memories stuck in my brain of, uh, of listening, listening to that to as well. Music, yeah. yeah. So one of the things that, that Barry was really good at was reinterpreting the core music for wherever they were, uh-huh. right? So we'll have, you know, later on in, let's say, uh, um, um, The Spy Who Loved Me, where they'll, they'll do everything with flutes, right? Uh-huh. And so it'll be the, the James Bond thing with flutes, Yep. And, you know, the, this theme with flutes. And we're going to you know, reprise the, the theme song of the movie with flutes. And he could, you know, reorchestrate it to go, what is the theme here? Oh, we're going to make it, you know, disco here. And we're going to make it, um, you know, orchestral here. Uh, he, was, he was so good at creating those kinds of theme moments uh, yeah. where you, you take this core piece of music and you would just figure out how to reinterpret it so that you were like, oh, it totally fits. It totally makes sense here. I've always loved, I mean, this goes without saying, I've always loved all the music from the, from the Bond movies. You know, the, obviously I know, I know all of the songs up until probably die another day is probably like the last one that I know, like every like beat of and every, you know, lyric of and whatnot. Um, Not that I haven't loved the new ones, but I'm just not as, you know, I don't have, you know, 40 years of, of listening to them under my belt. 
Right. Uh, so John Barry was another one of these, uh, you know, like like Terrence Young, who you know had his own cool, and he was you know he liked cars and he liked um, you know some of the cool ways to the sophistication and this this movie's just full of people who appreciated you know, yeah. living living the good life. The finer things in life. There you go. So now we got more random shots of people being shot at, uh, fights and air tubes being cut, uh, harpoons everywhere. Uh, and then sometimes they just cut to a shot of some random fish that happened to be floating by. Uh, we're now eight minutes into this. Sharks have now entered the fray. There are dead bodies and blood everywhere. The sharks are circling. At one point, Largo harpoons a shark on screen. And I thought to myself, I think that some sharks were harmed during the filming of this movie. <laughs> yeah, so, like, they had difficulty keeping the sharks alive. Yeah. And it just, you know, suggests a whole different world of, uh, you know, how stuff worked back then in terms of, like, the animals. And, and probably because they were sharks as opposed to dogs. Or, right. But, you know, they would, they would basically go out and collect them. And then they would, like, you know, use them and do stuff with them, and oh, they were hard to keep alive. <laughs> we just go out and get some more, or they would escape. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny too because in the documentary it says that under they would put uh, under their fins they would put strings so they yeah. it would help guide them, but also keep them from attacking any of the actors. Yeah. So we well, go. Well, that's what we're missing. And I we got string. What they would do so that the sharks would be more docile around the actors. So they got them tied uh -huh. with string is they would hold them still so they couldn't swim. So they would, they oh, would yeah, become yeah. partially you know, woozy because they're not getting enough oxygen through their fins. And then they'd let them go and they'd be like kind of leisurely like, oh, I'm a shark. I'm just a shark. I'm going to hurt anybody because I'm kind of tired. It's like it just yeah, woke up. I'm a little <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Suddenly it seems like it's down to Largo and two men, sort of. And, uh, and oh, then one man as Bond kills another one with a harpoon gun. Again, so many men die with harpoon guns in this movie. Largo gets away with the, on the speedy rafty thing to the Disco Valenti, but Bond is following. And I, then think, it, I a, think it was Terrence Young who had to go to the hospital because he got a harpoon injury. Oh, really? So these oh, harpoons had... talk about that in the documentary. Go ahead. They had rubberized tips, right? Rubber tips, yeah. not metal tips. And they used less air pressure to shoot the, or whatever, the, to shoot the, the harpoons, so they were less dangerous. Uh -huh. But even still, yeah. during a scuffle in which he was like an extra, he, he, he stepped on one or fell on one, and they had to take him to a hospital, so. Yeah. No bueno. So, and, uh, so then the, the, this destroyer shows up and some Coast Guard ships, and now they're in uh, hot pursuit shooting at the Disco Volante. Uh, meanwhile, Bond somehow is like under the ship holding on to some fin thing or something. And uh, as good guy ships get closer, Larko says, uh, shed the back of the ship, which he then does. And this smaller, faster little boat comes out and speeds away this is like such a bond thing you know oh, like yeah, you see yeah. this and you're like this belongs in a bond film oh it does because it is a bond film then the back half turns into this little fortress where suddenly like this 50 cal that was supposedly hidden somewhere shows up out of nowhere and starts shooting at the destroyer and, and the coast guard largo still with one bomb aboard takes off Bond finally emerges and makes his way onto the bridge. 
Meanwhile, in Domino's room, the one of the guys shows up and was like, hey, you know, I was only doing what I said, right? That's, that's what you're going to tell him. I'm setting you free. I uh, The bomb can't be exploded, so everything's cool, right? You're going to tell him. You're going to tell him I helped you, right? Then this fight occurs with like four people on the bridge, including Largo. The boat goes careening all over the place at full speed. It's, uh, this, these boat shots are definitely overcranked, you can tell. Plus, they should have died like a million times because they've come so close to the shore. I can't even count how many times. The water should be so shallow, they probably beached themselves a few times, or at least should have. Bond gets a hold of the controls and is trying to, like, steer it instead of, you know, slowing down the boat, which would have been a better idea. But no, uh, the boat goes careening all over the place, and um, it gets going left and right. The fight continues. It looks as if Largo is going to get the drop on Bond, but then... From behind, Domino saves Bond with, can you guess? A harpoon gun. So this is one of those scenes where, again, they flip the expectation. Bond right. never really rescues Domino. I mean, except in the broader sense that he kills Largo, the Springer. Yeah. But he doesn't rescue her from the torture. He doesn't rescue her during the fight. She rescues him. Although they wanted yep. to make sure that they did it in a way that where Bond didn't look like he was vulnerable and weak. But yeah. just that, like, uh, but nevertheless, she's the one who does it. Yep, she gets the drop on him. And then she's like, I'm so glad I killed him. You're glad. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We get the great so, line. Yeah, the best joke. Then uh, there's more dialogue while the ship is driving way too fast. And then suddenly they acknowledge it and they're like, oh, okay, we should do something about this. But Largo has somehow died in a way that he can't get to the controls of the ship. So Bond's like, well, let's get the hell out of here. So Bond and Domino and that other guy uh, jump off the ship, and then the ship runs into a, a, a beach and explodes. So yeah. funny story about this is that uh, in real life, to, uh, to cause the explosion to happen, they decided they were going to use rocket fuel, but they never had a chance to test the rocket fuel. Oh. So uh, the boat goes careening up into the beach. The Rocket fire blows up and disintegrates the boat, right? There's nothing left of the boat. That shot after the explosion where, you know, they you can see there's nothing there, that was real. Uh, what's even more amazing is that the second director said, we got back to Nassau 13 miles away and windows were blown out of, oh, wow. you know, some of the some of the buildings. Yeah. He's like, that's how crazy it's, it, that's how crazy it was. He's that like, is that crazy. is seriously the biggest explosion that's ever been put on film, at least up to that point. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So now, much like uh, the ending of Dr. No, we got Domino and Bond in the middle of the water. But instead of being left there, like in Dr. No, Bond blows up this like buoy, which has a hook on the end of it, which he then attaches to himself, grabs a hold of Domino, and then this plane flies over and yep. yanks them out of the boat and off they go flying and uh, the movie ends. Credits yep. as we see them flying off. What a weird talk about like uh, taking away expectations or swapping expectations. You're thinking, oh no, it's going to end like uh, Dr. No, but sure enough, it does not. Boom and off they go flying. Well, there we are. Almost uh, two hours into this thing. <laughs> I knew it was going to be long, but oh boy. Woo. It's like movie length. Yeah, right? No kidding. Great.
movie. I, I, you know, I think you're right. I think that this is one of the best of the uh, of the '60s Bonds. I, uh, I really like this one. There's something about You Only Live Twice that I like, but I think it's probably because I haven't watched it as much as I have the other ones. So maybe uh, it's better in my mind than uh, than oh, it really it, is. I'll have to go back and watch good. it soon. I mean, I think uh-huh. they're all, yeah, they're all good. The question that you know becomes, especially in such a long franchise, is you know, is it basically what I expect? Yes, Bond does uh-huh. this. Yes, Bond does that. And you know, as I said earlier, there are ways to mix it up without necessarily playing with the formula, right? Right. You can have a uh, you you know like Jaws. I think originally was he was a surprise. In fact, he was such a surprise. Let's use him again. Yep. Um, and then let's know, make him a goofy character and put him in Moonraker. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah, so, well, there's the goofy is a is a different kind of problem. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, I kind of feel like this was one of the better written ones, or or maybe yep. better edited, right? That the editor really was able to figure out how am I going to use these things. And when you've got performances that you didn't realize would be so good, and you want to really make use of them, obviously that's not something you can plan for. Yeah. You know, uh, you were saying that you know, Raquel Welch and, uh, you know, another A-list actress were, or at least we think of them as A-listers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we're out to get these parts. And, you know, maybe they could have also done things that were really interesting. I think uh, in Never See Never Again, she does a really good job of conveying this kind of deep sadness. The, uh-huh. uh, what is her name? Kim Basinger. Kim, Yeah. She does a really good job with the, I'm not happy here. This is not wonderful. Yeah. yeah uh, so I, I think, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And I think that that too is a really great film. And my only downfall on it is that I don't love. Uh, Lazenby. Film. Thank you, Lazenby. Uh, your turn to back me up. Yeah. I, you know, it's like he's a fine bond, but he's not like Connery. You know what I mean? Right. Especially coming off of a, and then it's interesting because as you get into Roger Moore, you get this like uh, these first couple where you're like, is this still he's still playing Connery? He's still what's you know, what's going yeah. on here? And it isn't until I think, you know, the spy who loved me where we start to get, oh, it, this is this is a Roger Moore bond. Now it starts to yeah. feel a little bit different. And then, it, you know, and then, as you said, it just becomes ridiculous. Yeah, it's um, a little silly. Yep. And but, it, uh, part of it was. I think some of these trend lines, which make sense in the early movies, right? Uh-huh. So, for example, there are no gadgets in Doctor No. I mean, right. he basically at one point shows up and gives him a, a Geiger counter, but it's a real Geiger counter. Yeah. Right? It's like, here's a tool. Well, it's like showing and up and going, too. here's a crowbar. Yeah, yeah. And then in the second movie, we get a gadget, we get the suitcase. It's uh-huh. got knives, it's got poison gas. It's got doubloons or you know gold coins yeah, yeah. or whatever, whatever the thing, and it's got a trick lock. Ooh. Now that's a gadget, but it's like pretty straightforward. It sounds yep. like the kind of spy stuff you'd read about from World War One or World War Two, right? Yep. Like mini cameras hidden behind a flower in my lapel, mm-hmm. and then in Goldfinger, you kind of go over the top with this Aston Martin, right? 
I can right. flatten your tires. It's got machine guns. It's bulletproof. It's got an ejector seat. Ejector seat. I never kid about my work, Mr. Bump. Yes. So the, the, the trajectory in terms of the gear is going off the rails, right? You can't draw that straight line and just keep going. At some point, you've got to be like, okay, you know, let's, let's not have a show that features the gadgets. You know, we yeah. can have stuff like a jet. I think Thunderball does a good job, right? So we've got the jetpack, right? We've got the Aston Martin, but they take bit parts, right? This movie doesn't go stupid with the gadgets. Instead, it's about the location, which is what you want to do. You go, there's a lot to bond. There's locations, there's situations, there's the spying, there's, you know, the enemy, there's the enemy's henchman. Our job was an excellent henchman. Right. Red Grant was an excellent adversary. You kind of think, is he the main villain? And Rosa Klebb, even mm -hmm. though she's hiring the organization, is she the side? Or is she, you know, how does it work there? Yeah. But it, does, it doesn't matter. They're both interesting. They've both got their shtick. She's got the, the pointy shoe. He's just like a brute. Yeah. There's a lot to work with. You don't have to go, we, we got to go crazier with the gadgets. Or we got to go crazier with the humor. We got to make it funnier. <laughs> yeah. You can just go... Let's just make a better story and like get to the authentic Bond stuff, whether it's the loc what is it about Bond? The sophistication, yeah. the locations, the the situ you know, the scenarios, what is it? And uh, you know, you kind of mix it up a little bit. We're not gadget heavy or we're not humor heavy, we're the whole Bond, we're gonna we're gonna pick some good stuff. But I think they do go overboard both with gadgets and humor. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, especially when you get into, I mean, like Moonraker is a, a really yeah. great example. But, you know, even those later more, those later more ones, you know, Octopussy, View to a Kill, you know, all those. Crazy. Yeah. Well, it was also funny, too, because I, for some reason, know Never Say Never very well, probably just because of the time it came out. Like, right. So it was really funny watching this movie and then, like, you know, finding the the parallels that are in that are in the, uh, you know, for instance, you got Fiona in Never Say Never when she's making him write that he was like the best sex he'd ever had and blah, 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 but it's actually a Q oh, gun. That, and he that shoots her with it. You know? in, in Cincinnati. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or wherever it was, Toledo or. Yeah. Yeah. So it was no, kind of fun no, to be able to find those parallels. <laughs> yeah. And it's not Bonko, you know, it's a, it's a video game, the, the, the yeah. thing with the, you know. Well, yeah, because it's, it's crazy. the age of video games, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and it plays like it's like they're playing, you know, Defender or uh, <laughs> Space Invaders for yeah for global What's domination. The, Tempest. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. But is it like three D too? It's like in a hologram or something. Yeah, I don't it's, know. It's, it's pretty crazy. ridiculous. It, yeah, it, it was is. one. Of, it was one of those games that was going to cost you more than a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was that was a dollar probably that yeah game. yeah it's a dollar for that game that the one Definitely. we actually sit in the chair and drive the race car right on well so it's interesting because i think that there's something we sort of delved into this but it just sort of coalesced into my brain you know there's despite what was happening socially and politically in the 60s right both star trek and and bond have a uh, almost like a male fantasy thing going with it 
Right. Don't you feel like, you know, again, we were talking about it, you know, the, the like everybody wants to be him and, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. But it, with Bond, you have the seduction and the cars and the gadgets and this like perfect ideal of always dressed fine and looking great and perfect in every situation that you're in. And then you've got Kirk, you know, on the flip side of this, who, who too is making the rounds with all the alien ladies and the, uh, you know, uh, his, his crew loves him and uh, he has an awesome vehicle as well. You know, I'm in charge of all of these people. I run a tight ship. Uh, but I'm also charismatic and yep. uh, funny from time to time, you know, and uh, all of my fellow officers all love me and uh, and whatnot, which we, with the exception of, I guess, of M&Q, it's the same with Bond as well, you know, like everybody gets along with uh, 007. So, well, there we go. I think that's a, it's a pretty good analysis of that, especially from a Star Trek point of view as best we can. It's interesting to see, again, I think, where we're coming from as far as the pop culture of the time. You know, what else are we seeing? And with all of that said, don't worry, because next week... We'll get back to season two uh, with some amok time and other fun things going on in the Star Trek universe season two, plus some crazy behind-the-scenes drama coming up in season two that you are not going to believe. As always, I'm Matt from Austin saying goodbye, and as always, from Planet Houston say goodbye, Ken! I think you got the point. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we'll see you all next week.